This is Radiance tape number JD29, recorded on July 25, 1971. A message by Jim Durkin entitled, God's Plan of Prosperity. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm, the first chapter. First verse now. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Since our subject is prosperity, I'm obviously using the third verse. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now prosperity is never an automatic thing. It isn't something that we suddenly attain to because we are Christians. No more is prosperity automatic than is sanctification automatic, godly living automatic, faith automatic. These things do not come to us because we are a Christian for a certain number of weeks, months, or years. It has nothing really to do with the length of time, although every one of these things takes some time. But really what must be mastered is the principles of God's Word that will cause these things to happen in our lives. Now, without these principles and the application of them, there can be no real prosperity. Now, I put down some basic attitudes that must exist before we can even talk about the subject of prosperity. And the only reason I'm recalling them to you now is because it's been some time since I've been teaching. I started this, and then I wasn't able to continue it. So let me go back to these basic attitudes about prosperity. And I say once again that prosperity has nothing to do with getting rich. Prosperity has nothing to do with accumulating money to spend on various things that you may want it to spend it on. Prosperity has to do with producing in you the means of giving. God wants you, a part of this divine nature. Now, you remember the book of Second Peter, scripture that I've used before on many occasions. The Bible says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these promises ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Now, the divine nature, one of God's characteristics is that God is always doing what? What's one of his characteristics? For God so loved the world that he gave. His characteristic, his nature is to give. And God wants you and me to be in that position to give. To give not only of that which we have naturally, our bodies, let's say, but to give that which he will supply us with, the wherewithal to give on an ever larger and ever expanding scale. It is God's purpose that the family of God master these principles that their giving may enlarge and enlarge and enlarge itself and the ministry may expand accordingly. Now, the Bible fully explains, but it's a book that does not simply come out and say, here are ten lessons from God on how to prosper. Lesson one, lesson two, it is not written that way. This book is a book that can only be spiritually discerned. This is not a textbook. It's not a book that you open up and here's uh, the chapter on prosperity and over here's the chapter on holiness and over here's... Men do things like this. If you read a book on what they call systematic theology, you will open to the first chapter and it will say God. And then it goes all the way through this first chapter on scriptures about God and it'll tell you things about God and what the Bible says about God. And then the next one will say Christ. And then it will go through and tell you all about what the Bible says about Christ. And then the next one, Holy Spirit. And then after that, it'll talk about this. And it'll talk about subject. 
But the Bible is not written that way. Now, God, being the creator and the author of this book, could have written it as a textbook. He could have written 100 chapters or 500 or 5,000 chapters fully detailing exactly how to do this and how to do that and how to have this and how to approach him, but he never did that. He gives here a little and there a little. Line upon line, precept upon precept, one here, one here, one here. And it is necessary for the man of God not only to search the Scriptures, but to open his heart completely to his Father's message. It is God speaking to us through this book. And the lessons of this book are not learned by the mentality, but they are received in the Spirit. It must be God's Spirit speaking to our spirit before we understand what is written here. Now, I can give it to you in a systematic way, and yet if your spirit is not attuned to it, you won't understand it at all. It won't make any sense to you. So you say, man, I heard it and it sure sounds good, but what do I do now? You do nothing with it until you understand it deep in the spirit. Then you can do something with it. Now, stop and consider for a moment, if you will, with me the message that I'm giving you tonight. Are your ears tuned to hear it? Jesus said some men have ears to hear, but they hear nothing. Are your eyes focused to see? Jesus said there are people who, having eyes to see, see not. Neither do they understand. Not because their minds are not capable of grasping it, because what I'm saying tonight cannot even be grasped by the mind. Because it's not a mental subject. It's a spiritual subject. You can logically understand it and never be able to apply it. Someone talked to me some time ago, they said, I've heard everything that you say on prosperity. And I watched you do it, and I do the same thing that you do, but it works for you and it doesn't work for me. Now, what's wrong? Because there's something in my heart that is different about it. There's something in my heart. There's no pull of money in my heart. There's no desire to be rich. There's no desire to be wealthy. Nothing I have means anything to me. The desire to dress well or not to dress well is of no importance. The desire to drive a fancy car or an a broken down, as of no importance. Nothing is of any importance except one thing, that in my life the nature of God can be manifest. And unless that nature is manifest, all other things are valueless to me. Now, if you have or I have any other desire, then God must work on that desire until all we desire is the glory of God. And that's the aim and the purpose of this book to produce in you the nature of God. It's not a book designed to make you wealthy, or a book designed to make you healthy, or a book designed to make you happy. All of those things can be the offspring of what this book is designed to do. But it's not the purpose of the book to make you have those things. It is the purpose of this book, and by all means the purpose of the one who wrote this book, to let the nature of God spring up in you and be revealed to the world through you. Now, if you let that nature spring up, then your attitudes will be right. So therefore, toward prosperity, your desire will be, a total giving will be your desire. You want to see the family prosper, that the family may be able to give. And I'm gonna have a lot to say about the family because some don't quite understand that concept. They're still independent-minded. And this is a concept that will always fail. I'm going to talk to you about God's system versus the American system. Some will say, well, you're unpatriotic. You're running down America. No, I'm not running down America. But I'm telling you, there's an American system which is promulgated by our advertising men that is destined to cause you to fail. If you listen to it. If you go back to the Word of God and do what it tells you to do, you cannot help but be blessed in everything that you do. And that's what the Bible says. You'll prosper in whatever you do. Now, without that godly plan and godly purpose and godly attitude, you're destined to failure. Only 3% of the people in America, when it comes down toward the end of their life, have anything more than a Social Security check. And it isn't because they've given thousands of millions of dollars away to the Lord. Most of them have spent their time frantically trying to make ends meet, frantically trying to keep 
the wolf away from the door, frantically trying to keep the lights, frantically trying to... That's not God's plan and purpose for his family. His family. His plan for his family is that of abundant life, that we will have enough and to spare, that we might be able to give and meet the needs of others who are not so fortunate. Why are we fortunate? Because we know the Word of God. That's why we're fortunate. And knowing it opens the door to everything for us. All right. Now, the second step must be that we recognize God as the owner of everything. Who owns the gold, the silver, and the cattle on a thousand hills? That's what the Bible says, isn't it? The gold and the silver and the cattle on a thousand hills are his. Someone says, no, they're not, they're mine. That's wrong. That concept is extremely detrimental. It will destroy anyone who holds it long enough. It will separate us from God. The gold, the silver, the cattle on a thousand hills are God's. Over God's property, over God's benevolent hand, he places men in positions of stewardship. They are managers of what God has placed in it. This body, whose body is this? My body, that's whose body it is. It is not my body. It is God's body, and I have no right to defile it. The Bible says, he that defiles the temple of God, he refers to the body as the temple of God. The Bible says, him shall God destroy. This isn't my body. This is God's body, and I am a steward over this body. He graciously gives me strength. He graciously gives me a mind to think with. He graciously gives me a spirit by which I can receive understanding from him, and he expects me to use my spirit my soul and my body for his purposes, not my purposes. I have no right to take my body and defile it sexually. I have no right to take my body and defile it and make it unhealthy. I have no right to take my body and defile it with drugs. I have no right to take my body and defile it with alcohol. This is not my body. It is God's body. And I must keep it pure for him. See, now once we recognize everything we possess, is lent to us from the Lord, placed under our hand, and we are stewards, stewards over it, then we begin to think differently about that which God has given us. This church, God's church. This microphone, God's microphone. This tape recorder, God's tape recorder. This blackboard, God's blackboard. The suit you wear, the clothes you have, the money you possess, the car you drive, the house you live in, the whole wide world, the whole universe. Is God's. But men, failing to recognize this, have set up their own system contrary to God's purposes, and they have acquired ownership. I'm not talking about legal ownership. I'm not talking about someone marking off these grounds say, James Durkin owns this. This is merely the government saying that I have the right to the full use and enjoyment of this land, that I'm the steward over that land. But men in their own minds have said, this is mine and God has nothing to say about it. That's wrong. That concept is totally erroneous and will lead you to frustration and failure as you try to accumulate more things than your brother has, more things than your sister, and everything you get, it'll never be enough. Never be enough. You'll want more and more and more and more and more, and you'll never stop at any point accumulating, 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 because it's for you. But if you turn it all over to God... And it's surprising what you're willing to do with that which has come under your dominion. You act very foolishly with it sometimes, but not really foolishly. You act according to God's plan. All right, now, recognizing God is the owner and we are the stewards. Knowing that God wants this prosperity for us, this kind of prosperity, not to make you rich, not to store you up with all kinds of goods you can't use and don't need, not to make you to the place where you're looking at your goods and like Nebuchadnezzar when he came out on his balcony that fateful day when he was about to lose his mind and realized that everything that he had was the loan of God, the gift of God. He walked out on his balcony, his eyes swept over Babylon, this great city, looked beyond the walls into the great plain of his massive empire that he conquered. And he said, is not this great Babylon which I have built for myself and for my own glory? And there came a voice to him from the excellent majesty and said, This day is thy glory and thy power and thine honor taken away from thee. And the Bible says his mind darkened. And for seven years, the Bible says he ate grass like an oxen. And the wet of the dew was upon him day and night. 
and his hands became long, his nails became long like eagle's talons, until after seven years, the Bible says his reason returned unto him, and then he looked up to God and realized that he alone was God. And he owned everything. And everything that Nebuchadnezzar had was the gift and the blessing and the benevolence and the mercy of God. And now he said, I extol and praise and bless the name of the Most High God who has done all of these things. Oh, he learned his lesson. And the Bible says God restored him to his soul. Now, he was a different king, though, when he went back. Now he was a king that was benevolent and giving. And he realized that God ruled in the heavens. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. That everything we possess is God's. Now, once you understand that, you think differently about what you have. It's no longer, I have something. It's, how will I use this for God? That's the difference. Now, let's take a look at prosperity. Now, I say, knowing it's God's plan for you, then you must want this. Now, it's a heavy responsibility to prosper. Because it forces you daily to think how you will utilize what God has given you. It is much easier... To remain poverty-stricken. You never have to worry about giving anything to anybody because you have nothing to give. You never have to worry about where you will send the various things that God has given you or which ministry you will support. You'll never have to worry about those decisions. That frustration will never possess you because you have nothing to give. But the man who takes upon himself that responsibility of prospering he has to daily think where he will send the benevolence that God has placed it in his hands. How he will use it to bless the people of God and to build the kingdom of God. Now it is important for you to be willing to take on you that responsibility to become a giver. By the way, the heaviest of all responsibilities. You cannot give promiscuously. You cannot give foolishly. You cannot give sillily. Lord God, show me. How will I disperse this? Who will I give it to? What ministry should it be sent to? Lord, show me. Don't let me waste that which you placed in my hand. The Bible warns us about being wasters, improvident, foolish. We need to be thrifty, careful, and wise, and give well. Now, let's go on. Now, what is God's plan of prosperity? First of all, I want to talk to you about the American system. See if you recognize it. Here's the American system. Grow up. Get a job. Sometimes it isn't always that way. Sometimes it's going to be reversed a little bit, but pretty well that's the idea. Grow up. Get a job. Get married. Rent an apartment. Go down to a store. Establish credit. Buy furniture. Buy clothes. Buy a car. Spend the rest of your life paying off bills. Right? Is that the American system? That's pretty well it. And everybody paddle their own canoe. I don't help you. You don't help me. You go down the drain. Too bad, buddy. I'm still paddling my own canoe. See? But what happens when my paddle breaks? That's right. What happens when my paddle breaks? All around me are brothers and sisters, and they're busily paddling their canoes. You know, just like this. See? And I'm saying, help, help. I'm drowning. I uh, Paddle your own canoe, buddy. See? And here they go. That's right. That's the American system. Go join the welfare. Get on charity someplace. Brother, we're busy. We're grabbing all we can get. See? No, no, my friends. There's a better system than that. And I'll tell you something. You follow the American system, I guarantee you're destined to failure. Now, I'm not downgrading America. It's not a political thing. I'm just saying the system is wrong. It won't work. Now, you have the glorious privilege of reading about God's plan of prosperity and entering into it. Now, let's see what that plan of prosperity is. God's plan is revealed in his dealings with Israel. He has revealed to us the correct plan. Now, God has a plan. And if this plan is followed, it inevitably produces prosperity. Now, some time ago, man wrote a book. His name is Napoleon Hill. And the book he wrote is entitled Think and Grow Rich. And what this man has done, whether he's taken them out of the Bible, or whether he's discovered them independently, he said he talked to way up into the hundred businessmen, 165 of the greatest world leaders of the last 50 or 60 years. And he asked them their secrets of prosperity. And he said they revealed to him how they accumulated their fortunes. 
And so he put these principles down in the book, and I think there are 17 of these principles that he placed down in the book. I don't think there are that many, but nevertheless, he put these 17 principles down in here. And by them, he espouses his philosophy. In this book, one point that he does make, which is of tremendous importance in this message that I bring to you tonight, he says that no man has ever accumulated a fortune of any size. And he's referring to one man accumulating a fortune unless he has gathered around him a group of men or women that have the same goal or vision that he has, and that group sitting together in council, planning how to bring this vision to pass, he said when they're perfectly in accord with each other, when their minds are in harmony, their goals are in harmony, and their spirits are in harmony, he said there arises a composite mind out of this group, which is greater than the sum of all the minds of these men and women put together. And that composite mind, generated by the force of all of them thinking in harmony with each other, that composite mind is a mind of genius. It transcends normal human limits. It raises the mind to a higher plane of vibration where ideas come not from the mentality, not from the mind, but from some outer source of inspiration. Now, I'm giving you his words. I don't know what he's talking about because I can't practice what he's saying. Because I have no desire to accumulate a fortune. And I hope you never have one. Because if you do have one, you are failing in the first principle of prosperity. The principle of prosperity is not to accumulate a fortune, but to give a fortune. Now, are you with me? The principle of prosperity is not to accumulate a fortune, but to give a fortune. Now, one principle that the Bible does lay down, though, and it constantly emphasizes this in the old and the new, is that God's people, in order to accomplish anything, must have one thing in common. And what is that? They must be of one mind and one accord. You see, God gave that principle. That's an eternal principle. That's why the devil will do anything in his power to get God's people fighting among themselves. Because if he can get us fighting with ourselves, he doesn't have to fight us. We have already destroyed any power that we might have. We have brought the thing to a finish because we are literally warring with ourselves and that harmony is broken. It is divided. And God's Spirit cannot flow through us at all. Now, God's plan as revealed in His dealings with Israel, that is the correct plan. Now, I want to talk to you about the family of God. The family of God. The old Israelitish system. Now, I don't pretend to know modern Israelitish customs, and, and I don't know that they would follow this plan at all. I'm talking about the old Israelitish system. It's what I call the patriarchal system. In our modern American family, here's what we do. We take a man and a woman, both of them who know nothing at all about marriage. They're totally unprepared for marriage. And they decide one day they're going to get married. So they come and they say, here, we want to get married. And so they come up before a preacher, maybe, or justice of peace, and they get married. Now, these two people, totally unprepared for marriage, get married. And then these two people who are totally unprepared for marriage take the next step of unpreparedness, and they bring a child into the world, and they're totally unprepared to be parents. Then they immediately move off to themselves, and they isolate themselves. They get in the house, and they hide. And for three or four or five years, that child has no one to compare or balance life with except the mother and the father. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What if the mother and father at that point in their lives are a little bit dingy? Well, now, I dealt with a lot of young people, and once I was young myself. And I know when I got married to my wife, I was a little bit dingy. And as a matter of fact, my wife must have been a little bit dingy because she married me point that I'm making is this. The old Israelitish patriarchal system, the child was part of a total community. And the child did not just have mother and daddy to compare things with. You know, the child grows up and let's say there's a family, the mother and the father, and they're fighting each other and arguing with each other all the time. 
And so here's the little baby. He's in the crib. And the mother and father walk up one on one side and one on the other. And the little baby is laying there. And the father reaches over and he jiggles the baby and says, giggle, giggle, goo or something like that. And the mother says, don't do that. You're waking him up. What do you mean I'm waking him up? Of course I'm waking him up because I want to have a little time to see my own son. Is there anything wrong? Don't shout at me. What do you mean? I'm... The baby wakes up. Ah! Now this may go on for three, four, five years. And that child having nothing else to compare life with, he begins to think what these two big people, all the world is made up of, that he finally begins to see them, of two people doing what? He doesn't know anything else. What are these big people supposed to do whenever they meet over his crib? What are they supposed to do? Start yelling at each other. And you know what he's going to do after a while? He's going to hope they don't meet over his crib because they're scaring him to death. That's right. Now, the old Israelitish patriarchal system didn't work that way. The child was introduced early to a total community. And it gave him an opportunity to see many models. Many models. And the child grew up with a reasonably balanced life. Because each person was a part of the total community, they kept their lives reasonably balanced with each other. They could receive the advice of older people. They could receive the counsel of the patriarch. They could receive the counsel of other godly women. The New Testament carried the same principle on, didn't it? What did it say? It says, let the older women teach the younger women, what? How to love their husbands. Why are we saying about it? Why nobody's going to tell me how to love my husband? Somebody ought to tell somebody. I don't know who's going to do it, but somebody should do it. And we should follow the New Testament principle, which was the Old Testament principle. Never has changed that the older women who have learned and are experienced and understand will instruct the younger women how to love their husbands. Many husbands need to be taught how to love their wives. That's the truth. They don't know anything. Here the child comes in the world... They don't know anything about that. They need help. You know something? If I could just go back with all of the knowledge that I now have and raise my three children all over, oh, how differently I would do things. But do you know something? Nobody could tell me, James Durkin, at age 20 or 21 or 22, anything. I knew it all. I knew how to raise children. I knew how to solve all the problems of the world. In six months after being a Christian, I knew the whole Bible, and I was probably the world's greatest preacher in only a year. Now, all of that was the blessing that God had poured out upon me. And 12 years later, I fell on my face in all of it. I lost my ability to preach. I lost all confidence in myself. My home was broken. My children were in trouble psychologically. Everything was disrupted. And I had to get down before God and say, Lord, this book has the answer. Somewhere it's here. Show me what to do. And he had to tell me, here's what I want you to do. You quit adding your three words after everything that I say. I told you what it was, but we know. I explained everything away. And I went back to this book. And I came back to my family. And I said, what we're going to do when our family came back together, I said, we're going to establish the family enterprise. I still didn't see the family of God. God was yet to reveal that, but at least I started with the family. The family. We are going to be a family. We weren't a family before. All we were is a man and a woman who were legally tied together. And as a result of that legal tying together and biological function, children were born in the world. And we were ill-prepared to receive them, didn't know how to raise them, and so the family was constantly five people, each one pulling in their own direction to get their own aims and ideas and desires fulfilled. When we came back together the next time, out of it came a family. And beautifully enough, from the family has grown the family. Now, without that family here, there could have been no family here. See? Now, God's plan was a family. Now, I don't mean... We all live in the Lighthouse Ranch. You don't hear me espousing an idea like that. That would be contrary to what God is saying, or at least I, I believe it would be. I cannot see this in the New Testament. There was a time, for just a moment, where the people that got saved, they took lands, if they were possessors of it, and they sold it, 
and they gave the money to the apostles, and they distributed it to every man's servant. That's, that's fine. If the Lord moves on somebody like that, and they want to do that well and good, but you never hear that espoused here, because I don't believe that's God's purpose unless he lays it on your heart to do something of that nature. But no way can I command it or say that that's what you ought to do. But the point that I'm making is this. It is God's purpose to create a family, and God's children are that family. Now, if that family is functioning together properly, then here's what we're going to have. We're going to have one mind and one accord and the whole family moving for a common purpose. Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? The whole family moving for a common purpose. All right. Now, let's take point number three. What is God's method of prosperity? All right, let's take a people that were about as poor as you could ever get. And that was the Israelites when they were in the land of Egypt. Now, they were poor beyond belief. They were slaves, and these Egyptians had taken everything away from them. They had no money at all. They had barely enough food to keep alive. They had hovels to live in, and that was the extent. They had grown very rapidly. They were a very large people, and they multiplied very rapidly. They had vigorous children. They grew up and bore others, and the nation grew very rapidly until it threatened to outgrow the Egyptians themselves. And so these people now began to take the male sons of the Israelites and they began to kill them, if they possibly could. And yet, even in spite of the fact that they killed the male sons whenever they could get them away from the Israelitish mothers, yet the nation still grew vigorously and still grew great and strong. But they were absolutely poverty-stricken. Now, let's see how God moved with this group of people to bring them from poverty to prosperity. The first thing that he did, he put them on a forced savings program. Now, can I say this again? You know one of the things that I know about most people? You give them 10 cents, and what will they immediately do with the dime? Go spend it right away. You give them a dollar, and what will they do with a dollar? That's right, get 10 candy bars. And you give them $100, then they go, see? And no matter, just the minute you place in their hand, like, right, they're immediately reduced right back to that state again. Immediately reduced right back to that state. God put the children of Israel on a forced savings program. For 400 years, they worked for the Egyptians, and they never got a dime for their work. Not a dime. And they labored, and they worked, and they worked hard. And the Egyptians drove them day and night to produce these bricks that they wanted in order to build their altars and their monuments and their things that they were building at that particular time. And for 400 years, they never received anything for that at all. Did they ever get any money for the work that they did? Does anyone know? Did they ever get paid? That's right. They did get paid. And it all came in one lump sum. Now listen to me. There can be no prosperity without some instrument or instruments of production. God has given to every individual man an instrument of production. Now, pardon me for using the language of industry and commerce, but you'll understand it better that way. What is my instrument of production that God gave to me? He gives every man exactly the same. What, what was said? My body. That's exactly right. This is an instrument of production. I can learn... Marvelous instrument of production. I can learn to wrap my hands around a shovel and be trained to dig. I can produce a ditch if someone needs a ditch. I can learn to take and put in my hands something called a hammer and nails, and I can learn to build a house if someone needs a house. I can learn to roof the house. I can learn to floor the house. I can learn to plow a field. I can learn to plant the field, and all with this body. A remarkable instrument of production. It's even more remarkable in that I can think. I can think how, you see, here's a field that I have, and I'm supposed to plant that field. And all I have, let's say I, I'm standing here and I say, man, that soil looks pretty tough, pretty hard, and I've got to get this field planted up. How am I going to do it? And I look around and I say, my, I get, I, I get down there with my hands and I try and scratch the soil and it's pretty tough and it begins to tear up my fingers. I say, boy, I can't do it that way. And yet I've got to break that soil some way or other to get the seeds in it that I've got. How am I going to do it? 
So I look around, and here I see an old stick, old branch falling off. And I pick up that branch, and I, I stand there with a minute, and I say, let me try something here. And I, I crack in the soil, and sure enough, it breaks the soil up. And now I've got another instrument of production. It can speed up what my body can do. You see, I've applied my mind to my physical, and I've come up with a tool to work with. Now, here's my brother over there. He doesn't get this instrument. Of, he sees me using it, but he's a purist. You know what a purist is? He's not going to use a tool. So he gets down there on his knees and he says, Brother, all that God gave me is my hands and my knees and, and my back, and that's what I'm going to use and nothing else. So he's got a plot of ground over there too. And he starts to go at it. And here I'm, I'm scratching with my stick, and sure enough, I got the whole thing scratched up pretty quick and the whole field done. And, and man, I planted my seed and I've covered it back over, and the rain begins to come and the crop begins to grow. And here he's got a little tiny patch this way. And his hands are all sore and raw. And he gets up and says, I guess God doesn't want me to prosper because look at my hands, they're all ruined. Now, wait a minute. Are you with me? What made the difference? The wise use of what God gave. It's all around us. Literally unlimited, the things that can be done. You have everything that you need, but it's got to be applied properly. Pretty soon I get an idea with my stick, and I say, boy, that stick was good, but my back sure got sore. I wonder if I can figure out some other way, and pretty soon I see an animal out there, and that animal is pushing rocks, and I say, wow, that animal's ten times as strong as I am. Say what I'm going to do if I could get some way to get that animal to... Now you know the rest of the story. Pretty soon I've got an animal pulling my stick, and then I develop a better stick, and then I do this and I do that, and the next thing, boy, I'm really getting to where I... This man can still only plow up a little tiny bit of field. He can't even keep body and soul together any longer. And here I'm able to plow up 50 fields and not be as tired as he is trying to plow up one field. Now God must give to his people the instruments of production. And he will do it for these Israelites. And how he did it was to put them on a forced savings program. They work with their hands. They made bricks. They gave them to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians would not pay them a dime. Until at the end of 400 years, when God was ready to bring them out, and he sent all those plagues upon the people, and the people were running to them and saying, Get out of the land! Get out of the land! Get away from us! We'd be all dead men! Go away! Just worship God! Do anything you want! And the Israelites, God told them, he said, Turn around and tell them you want to borrow their jewels, and their gold, and their silver, and their furs. You want to borrow. Now they're telling you, Get out and never come back! We want to borrow your jewels. Yes, you can have them. And they began to take them off their ears and off their fingers and off their garments and said, take them, take them, take them and go. And that gave to the Israelites the instruments of production that they would need later. Then God, now he knew what they would do. If he turned them loose with all of that gold and silver, do you know what they would have done with it? If he said, okay, you got it now, take off, do anything you want, you know what they'd have done? They'd have headed to the nearest big city. And it said, Daddy, buy me that dress. Mother, get me that chariot. I want that big horse. I want that. And then one day they would have had a big horse and a big chariot and all completely out of money. And here they've been standing in the middle of a big city and said, I don't have any. I'm poverty stricken. Now, do we have an example of this in the Bible? The prodigal son is an example. The father, through labor, built up a considerable competence. And the son came to his father and said, Father, I'm tired of living this kind of a life. I want you to give me the portion of the inheritance that falls to me. Now, he had no right to that inheritance until his father passed away and would leave it to him. That really belonged to the father. Sure, it belonged to the family, but the father was the administrator. He said, I want that. The father said, all right, son, here, take it. The father learned the lessons of prosperity. The son hadn't. The Bible says that the son took the money, went into a far land, and wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he was reduced to poverty, he went back to these friends and asked if they would feed him. And then nobody gave him not a bite to eat. They wanted nothing to do with him. And the Bible says he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And a citizen of the country tried to get rid of him but couldn't. And finally sent him out to feed the swine. And the man, the only food that he had reduced out of poverty, the only food that he had was to eat the husks that the swine ate. The food that was thrown to the pigs, he'd grab up some of that and stuff it in his mouth. I don't know if he could keep it down or what, but that's all he had. And finally, he sat there, and the Bible says he came to himself, and he said, how many of my father's servants are better off than I am? 
He said, I will return and go back to my father and say, Father, I sinned against heaven and before thee. Father, let me be as one of your hired hands, a servant. Now, you know the rest of the story. The father took him back, forgave him. They had the fatted calf, and they taken him right back into the home. He's a part of the family. But he had to go back to learn those lessons of prosperity. There are many people that I say have never learned to hold on to one single cent that they have. They just take it and spend it as fast as they've got it. And the idea is, brother, easy come, easy go. No, that's wrong. God expects you to use the money that you have and the possessions you have according to a godly pattern. And you're not to throw it away. You're to use it as a tool to build up the kingdom of God. All right? Now, he took the Israelites immediately. Here they had this gold and silver and jewels and fine garments and furs. And immediately he drove them out into the wilderness. There wasn't a place they could have spent a dime at all. And he fed them with the manna from heaven. They couldn't spend it. They wandered around in the desert for 40 years. And now they come into the promised land. They still have everything they need. But now they can't spend it yet. Because now they're into warfare. There's no place to spend it. They get into a battle and they take the land. Now, why did God bring them to the promised land? And what did he give them there? He gave them something more. He gave them a further instrument of production and made sure they didn't get rid of it. He knew someone would try to sweet-talk them or fast-talk them out. What did God give to every single Israelite that went into the promised land? A piece of land. A further instrument of production. Now, let's see what he did. When they went into that country, let's say there was the country, they went into it and they took it. Every place, he said, this shall be the inheritance of the tribe of Judah. Marked it off. Told them right where to make the markers. And he said, every person shall receive a piece of land. And they went into that land, and they divided it off into proper segments like this according to the need of the family and so forth, each person having his particular piece of land that belonged to him. Now, not only did he have the land, but he had the wherewithal to work the land. What good is a piece of land if you don't have a plow, and if you don't have any money to buy seed, and if you don't have any money to keep yourself going to the first harvest comes in? No good at all. But God had already provided them with the capital that they needed to work the land. Now, God did something beyond that. What he said, if each piece of land, let's say this man got this piece of land here. Let's say the man was foolish. He was slothful like it tells us in the book of Proverbs. He wouldn't till the land. The Bible says, he that tilleth his land shall have plenty of bread. He that looketh well to the state of his flocks, they'll provide him with milk and with meat and with everything else that he needs. But let's assume that this man was improvident. He was a waster. He was a wastrel. He was a spendthrift. So at some place along the line, he doesn't raise a crop this year. And pretty soon he spent the gold that God gave him and he's totally broke. So he goes over to this man here and he borrows from him all that he can on this land. Now he's still got another chance. He's borrowed on that land and he shouldn't have done it because the Bible says the borrower is a slave of the lender. He shouldn't have done it because part of everything that he earns on this land from now on, he's going to have to pay to this man. He no longer is really working completely for himself. He's partly working for this man. And God never intended that in the beginning. He intended that each man should work for himself. And the whole family should work together for the purposes of God. All right, now, this man has borrowed from this man. It might be that this man now goes back because he has the habits of a wastrel. He won't work. He's lazy. So he uses up all the money he's borrowed, and now he's got no more to borrow. And the Bible laid down a law. That this man who owned this land would now have to go to work for this man as a bondservant, not a slave. He'd have to work off his indebtedness that way. And sometimes he couldn't do that. Everything that his master would give him, he still spent it. Kept on spending it. Till the day he died, he remained a bondservant. And this land passed into the control of this man. Because he was a better man. He watched over it. And he would use that land. He would grow crops on it. But at the end of 50 years, this man must give up all control to this land. And it must go back to the original family that was given to in the beginning. Now, you know why God did that? So that there would be no permanently poor in Israel. Every 50 years, every family and every man would have a chance to start over again and to build that prosperity that God intended for him to build in the beginning. Now, folks, if you can see God's divine plan, it is perfect, it works, and it must be put into operation in this church and on the ranch and everywhere we go. And to a large extent, it is being put into practice, this prosperity. Now, let me draw a plan for you and show you what must be done and what God's plan is. And then I'll let you go home and think about what you've heard tonight. Number one, a group of people 
must pool their energies to produce the vision. It is an extremely difficult thing for a single individual to know everything, to be able to do everything, to have enough energy to fulfill any vision of any size at all. It must be a group of people with a common vision and a common purpose. They must pool through work, they must accumulate through work and mutual help, they must accumulate the instruments of production. Now, hear me. On the ranch, we are putting into operation, and I want this to be followed carefully by the church, because when you see exactly what we're doing, and many of you do see, we want you to join in totally what we are doing. You must grasp the same vision. There cannot be, there will not be any exploitation of anybody else for any individual interest. But if you see the common purpose for which we are aiming, then you will see how prosperity is reached, how it is accumulated, and what the results of it are as we begin to give in a wider and wider range of activities for the ministry. Now, through the common work of the ranch, going out on these railroad jobs, laboring in the community on our jobs, we have now accumulated down in the back of 5th and B Street, a donut shop. This donut shop will shortly be serving this community. Now let me show you something. There are any number of people probably that would desire to be in a donut shop of their own. But they, in their whole lifetime, because they will not practice God's method of prosperity, could never get themselves into a donut shop and never make it run if they did get into it. Now, for instance... Our brother Dave, our sister Colleen, they have learned to make good donuts. And I'll guarantee you something, the place where they trained, those people knew how to make them, and now Dave and Colleen know how to make them. And they're going to make tremendous donuts that the people of this area are just going to eat up by many, many dozens. <laughs> but at this point, Dave and Colleen, neither of them, although both of them are getting plenty sharp, are not good business people. That has not been their background. It has not been their training. It has not been their learning. And so it's easily possible for them, let's say they had enough money to buy the basic equipment that they need, it would be easily possible for them for some smart salesman to come in or some sharp dealer to come in and talk them into some kind of a contract that would tie them up completely and they would never prosper. But here we have Byron Mabon, a man who has spent years in business administration, a man who understands money, a man who understands lending, a man who understands borrowing, a man who can look at a balance sheet and understand whether this is a good deal or a bad deal. They have him to fall back on. And so when something is presented to them, and here and here and here and here, why don't you sign right here? They say, sorry, sorry. I want to go take this to our financial administrator. He looked that over. He said, that's not a good deal. Here's what's wrong and here's what's wrong. Oh, we don't want that. Sorry, sir. No deal. Do you see how the family working together protects every member of the family? You can't know everything. Nobody can know everything. Now, when this donut shop gets going, the normal way, let's say you have a donut shop. So you open up and you put a sign on your window and say, donut shop. And you go to work and boy, you make donuts. Here they all are, and you bring them out, and you set them on the racks, and then you stand there. Wonder if somebody's going to come in. Then you go out and look at the door, and I thought, surely, great, they told me if you build a better mouse trap, that people will beat a path to your door. Well, I've got some good donuts here, but where's the people? Not a one of them anywhere. Finally, one guy comes down the line, and he looks at your window, says, donut shop, and he looks through the window, and he sees donuts in there, walks in, says, I'll take one donut. <laughs> Here you go, there's racks full of donuts, donuts, donuts. I'll take one donut. How much? Nine cents, ten cents, whatever. That goes all day long, and you're done, and you sold one donut, and all these donuts you got in. What are you going to do with all those donuts? You can eat them. That's good enough for one meal. But how about two, three, four, five, fifteen meals? Hundred and twenty dozen donuts all over the racks? You can't do it. But you know what's going to happen? It isn't going to happen with the donut shop. The family comes into it again. And we're going to have young people that are going to go out door to door and house to house. And they're going to take donuts fresh off those racks. 
and they're going to go down the street and they're going to knock on a door and say, hello, we're from the new donut shop in town and we've got a free gift from you. We want you to taste absolutely free one of our delicious donuts. And they're going to hand a donut to the person. Boy, that is really good. Would you like to buy a dozen or two? I think I will take a dozen. And I'll guarantee you this. Instead of Dave and Colleen having to stand there with 120 dozen donuts rotting on the shelves, every single one of those will be taken out and distributed during the day. The family did it. You see what I'm understanding? It's the family. The Tri-City Advertiser, it's the family that's making it operate. The Tri-City Advertiser doesn't operate because of Bernie, although he's a vitally important member of it. But Bernie depends on Byron to help him. Depends on me to help him. Depends on the people around him to help him. But now we go up to Oregon and we get 21,000 papers. 21,000 papers. And you bring them back. And here we give them to Bernie and say, here they are, Bernie, distribute them. And there's stacks of papers everywhere. And he picks up a hundred of them and he's walking down the street like this. See? Oh, boy. And he comes back and he gets another hundred of them. He's walking down the street like this. You know, how many days would it take him to get those papers out? But once again, the family comes into it. And they break up into crews and here they begin to move like this. And let me tell you something. The whole community is beginning to set up and say, what is that? What is that? That makes that group of people move together as one man. Oh, we have our problems. But I'll tell you something, God is working those problems out. The family is learning to live together, to produce together, to work together, and to expand together. Young men are going out in the community and working at jobs and bringing that money in to accumulate the capital we need. Ifata, leather shop, is developing. Fabric shop, going to come into town. You ought to see some of the stuff that they're making. Here's girls with marvelous talent built into their fingers and their minds and their hearts. They've learned to sew garments that are beautiful beyond words. They're beautiful things. Peter is a craftsman in leather. But Peter can't do it by himself. He needs those girls to help him. They can't do it by themselves. Here's Ron Hurl makes flutes. But though he makes good flutes and beautiful flutes, here comes along our brother Norman, and he decorates those flutes, and together they make a masterpiece. Our sister Pamela Sunshine creates a beautiful shirt, but our sister Judy takes and embroiders the shirt and makes a masterpiece. Together they produce something beautiful. The family is working. But here it is. They're all working on their sewing machines and they've got all these beautiful things. But who's going to sell them? Somebody else from the family comes in and they become the one who sells it. And the total thing is all the family working together to produce the prosperity. Oh, my friend, if we can go back to God's system, there is nothing, nothing that can stop God's children from prospering. Now, folks, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is it worth it to follow God's plan? Yes, sir, it is.